Why don't you give it up for Peter? He's going to come and open Matthew chapter 16 for us. And uh, thanks, brother. Thank you, David. Well, greetings again, I think, from uh, Gulf Coast Community Church. I think Ryan was just here with you recently, and, and uh, you've seen others of us. I think Peter Stonecipher maybe has been here, and, and uh, we enjoy the fellowship that, uh, that we have, Derek uh, and, and other pastors that meet once a month uh, for lunch and fellowship and, and so forth. That happens at Gulf Coast Community Church that Darren... Kinney kind of has organized and keeps going, so we appreciate that. I bring you greetings from Gulf Coast, and uh, it's just a joy to be with you guys. I mean, this is, how cool is this place <laughs> that, you, that the Lord's kind of given you guys to meet in, and uh, nice youthful church, new ones, babies coming and coming along. That's just, it's great to see what the Lord is, is doing here in your midst. Um, I wanted to, uh, I just wanted to mention a friend, Carol Alexander, who is a first-time guest with you guys today, and she's uh, a longtime friend and colleague because she is the, she is the director, executive director of a wonderful ministry here in St. Petersburg called Next Step, um, Next Step Pregnancy Center that serves in Midtown on 22nd Street South. And uh, so it's nice to have Carol here this morning and see others. <laughs> uh, how, many of you, how many of you guys had something um, unexpected happen this week <laughs> that messed with your plans, okay? <laughs> messed with your life. Um, things in life seldom work out the way that we expect. They just, they just you know, just don't. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we're going to quit having expectations because you can't, you can't live life without having expectations. They range all the way from the little things like you get in your car to come to church on Sunday morning and you just expect that it's going to start and you're going to get there. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but the expectation nevertheless is there. Uh, goes from there to the big things about our own you know, our destiny, our purpose, the big circumstances of our lives and the world around us and what we expect out of our relationships, um, our health, our calling, our careers, our employers, our church, our government, nature, everything. I mean, nobody ever expects an earthquake or a hurricane to, you know, kind of interrupt their normal steady life and the way that things are working out. Now as Christians there's implications here because since God is overall um, the expectations that we have about our lives and the world really they really boil down to what it is we're expecting of God. What it is that we expect him to do and particularly as it pertains to our lives. Well there's two different you know, you might have expectations about what's going to happen broadly in the world, and, you know, you're kind of philosophical about it if it doesn't work out that way. But the things that affect us personally, that's different. Jesus told a parable about a man uh, who hired laborers for his vineyard in, in Matthew chapter 20. And he went out several times during the day to hire more workers. And remember the, that the ones that he hired early 
those of you who remember this, this parable, the ones that he, that he hired early in the morning ended up grumbling that they had received no more pay than the laborers who were hired at the end of the, of the day. So what, what happened here? They received exactly the pay that they had agreed to and that they had expected to receive, but something happened during the day that changed their expectations. See, they made assumptions that were based on their own ideas of fairness, and these assumptions shaped their expectations of what would happen next, but the master of the house, here's the principle, had no obligation to fulfill those expectations because those expectations were not based on any commitment he had made. Now, who was the master of the house? Jesus. Who were the workers? You and I. The people who belong to the kingdom of God, the people who have belonged to him, been called for his purpose. The application here is that when we become offended with God about what he did or did not do, you can guarantee that the thing we expected was not something he promised us. God has obligated himself. He's obligated himself to bring about every one of the things he has promised, but he is not obligated to perform according to our expectations. So this is an important life lesson that we will see clearly illustrated in God's word today. As we see how Jesus dealt with the expectations of two different people. We've already read the scripture, and we'll look at that again about, about the apostle Peter. But the other one is the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. I believe that as we see how he dealt with these two men and their expectations, we will learn a whole lot that is directly applicable to us as his followers, those who belong to the kingdom of God. So we're going to look, start by looking at Peter and the transformation of Peter's expectations in Matthew 16. And let's just pray for a moment first before we dive into this. Father, we want to bow our hearts before you as your people. We belong to you, Lord. You purchased us at such great cost. And we don't know what's going to happen, Lord, but we have a whole lot of ideas about what's going to happen. We just want to bring those to you now and ask that as we search your word, let it search our hearts. And we bow our hearts before your word, Lord, and ask that you would use your word transformingly in our lives as we bow before you here. Be at work by the Holy Spirit sovereignly in each heart today. We ask through Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Amen. So let's look again there at Matthew 16 when it's, where it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of, how do you say that, Caesarea? I thought it was Caesarea. So either way, <laughs> Caesarea, Caesarea, Philippi. And he asked his disciples, and by the way, this is, okay, he, now he has wandered, if you will, to the, about the furthest point you could get in Judea, in, that, in Galilee, in that region, of the whole regions that Jesus traveled on foot during his life. He was about at the furthest point you could get from, from Jerusalem. So he asked his disciples, 
who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. John the Baptist was dead at this point, been killed by Herod, brutally murdered. And, and uh, so he said to them, well, what about you? Who, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he did something strange. He strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Peter has a revelation here. And the surprising part was not that he proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, the promised anointed one that everyone was looking for. There was a lot of that stirring already. We saw in the, in early on, we see, see like in the Gospel of John, we learned that the very first time that Peter was told about Jesus by his brother Andrew, Andrew, Andrew told him, we found the Messiah. So Peter came to him and abandoned all to follow him. And I don't think that he would have done something so radical if he did not already think that Jesus was very likely the Messiah. So this was no surprise. Um, and we don't know what Peter's personal aspirations were at this time. Um, we get some glimpses into that, what his own ambitions might have been concerning this. But he was all in already and he already thought that Jesus was the Messiah. But here's what's new and surprising here. When Peter adds the son of the living God. Now this is a conclusion that no good Jew could come to without divine revelation. I mean, it's so far from what anyone could come through. So far out of their worldview context of what could be that it had to be revelation from God that would allow Peter the good Jew to say you are the son of God to Jesus and so Jesus pronounces Peter blessed he confirms that he confirms yep this is a revelation directly from God that you've had and then he gives him the keys of kingdom does a, says all these things it's like this is really heavy stuff. Peter's head must be spinning at this point. It's like, or it's like one of those moments like they knock on your door with the, you know, with the, you've been a winner of 10 million or something and you're like, is this real? You know, you're just having an out-of-body almost experience. And, you know, this, this is like, yes, everything he thought is confirmed and more. And I'm like in on this right in next to Jesus where I always kind of was wanting to be in that position. So what's happening here? Peter has an expectation. He's just confirmed his identity. You know, he, he, Peter has a special place. He's been assigned this special role in the kingdom. And, and Peter was a good Jew. He knew the scriptural prophecies of the coming Christ. He, um, there were expectations about what would happen when Christ would appear to usher in his kingdom, his kingdom reign of righteousness. 
crush his foes beneath his feet, deliver his people from all oppression. These expectations, by the way, they were not made up. They were based on Scripture. They were scriptural expectations. Furthermore, Jesus is not just confirming this this is true, but he's, he's giving Peter this special place of prominence in his kingdom. Now, just put yourself in Peter's sandals for a second. What do you think your expectations would be in these circumstances? What, what would your expectations be? But look at the very next thing that happens. The very next thing that happens, starting in verse 21. From that time, from that time. Now, everybody had been wondering up till now who thought Jesus might be the Messiah, why aren't you marching to Jerusalem? And here he is wandering around the Galilean countryside. Now he's at the furthest point from Jerusalem. But from that time, and what is that time? The time that a revelation is come that only, only could have come from God the Father. Something completely unexpected. Yes, this is the Messiah, but Jesus needed for his people to know something else about his identity that would make, without which all the rest of it, what he was going to do and going to die on the cross would, would have no meaning. Because if somebody who isn't God died on that cross, we're lost in our sins. It had to be confirmed absolutely that this was not only the Messiah in human terms, the anointed king promised, but this was God. Who not, you know, God never explains, by the way, this is a little aside. He never, you know, it's, he doesn't say to us now, you know, I know that it's hard to wrap your mind around how he could be all the, fully God and fully man. And so let me kind of explain that to you. And he's just like, God is not obligated to do that. He gives us knowledge about himself. We, do you know we could have no knowledge about God if he hadn't, if he hadn't, in mercy, decided to give us knowledge about him. He, everything we know about God is given to us by God to know. And he didn't, he didn't need, feel the need to explain how he could be both God and man. He just, he just made sure that it was clear that he is fully man, and he made sure that it is clear he is fully God. That's Jesus Christ. That's the king whom we follow and who, to whom we belong. And the, and the one who, so from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. So he's turning around and heading south and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Now listen, Jesus was fully man. Remember, he was tempted as we are. Now if you were in Jesus' shoes, you probably wouldn't be tempted by a lot of little petty stuff you and I are tempted by. But you might be tempted 
to seize control of the situation when you know that you were born to be king. So, I don't know whether he was suffering a moment's hesit, a real temptation there or not, but, but that's what to say when, to Satan when you're being tempted. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Jesus adjusts Peter's expectations. See, because now that his identity has been clearly established, and he immediately begins to teach his disciples what his mission is, um, to say that this new information contradicts their expectations would be the mother of all understatements. Okay? So, how, so Peter rebukes Jesus. How does Peter respond to this new information? Well, not very well. We have a serious problem here. Peter just proclaimed Jesus to be the Son of God, and now he's rebuking him. I mean, I get this picture like, you know, of having your rude uncle visiting from, you know, you know, somewhere, and he's with your friends, and he's making rude jokes and really, you know, stuff that's just, you know, culturally insensitive and stuff, and it's like, you want to take him aside and rebuke him. Hey, man, you can't say something like that. I mean, it's just a ridiculous notion that the very person that Peter just affirmed to be the son of God, he's now going to take aside and rebuke. But he does that. Now, why would Peter do this? What could make a man who had just had this divine revelation turn around and dare to scold the Son of God, essentially? It's likely that it was more than just the shock of the thought that the Lord should have to endure suffering and death. For one thing, these were not completely novel ideas to the Jews who knew there were other scriptures about the suffering servant Messiah, like in Isaiah 53. Nevertheless, these were the prophecies that they couldn't figure out how it all fit, and they tended to want to focus more on the conquering king, Messiah. So they just couldn't fit it all together. It was a mystery. It was a mystery. So they focused on the, the, the prophecies of the Messiah king who would come and deliver them. They had a strong expectation. They were looking so eagerly forward to this being fulfilled that when the Messiah showed up on the scene to set up a, his kingdom, all of Israel's oppressors would be destroyed and it would finally be delivered. Was this expect expectation inaccurate as to the sequence and timing of its fulfillment? Well, yeah. We know that in retrospect. But was it a sinful expectation? No. No, not at, not at all. Not in itself. However, there's more to Peter's reaction to Jesus than these big picture expectations about the coming kingdom. What's causing Peter to react this way is that Jesus has offended him. And why has Jesus offended him? Because Peter's personal ambitions are tied, really tied now, to what happens to Jesus. And listen, Peter's expectations about what would happen to him they were tied to his expectations about the reign of the Messiah, what that would look like, and Peter's expectations for himself did not include humiliation, defeat, and suffering that Jesus had just described. It didn't include that. So it's more than this impersonal affection for the king and his glory. It's a personal ambition. And, 
And you say, how do you know that? Well, because Jesus pretty much said so right here. We'll get to that in a second, but let me just ask you, have you ever found yourself in a position of rebuking God? How could something like this happen? I think the key to understanding the issue here is how our personal ambitions can lead us to the place where we would find ourselves scolding the Lord and offended with the Lord. As when Jesus says to Peter, but, but the Lord uh, is saying to Peter here, you are a hindrance to me. For, here we go, here's the key. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So here's a principle, applied principle. We set our minds on the things of man when we make a substitute for the promise of God with a desire, ambition, or hope in something he has not promised. And this, my friends, is how we can find ourselves offended with God and rebuking God. Suffering and failure is not part of what we aspire to experience. We usually try to do everything we can to avoid suffering and experience pleasure and winning and, and adulation, admiration. What brings you pleasure? Those are the things you will naturally try to arrange everything in your life to make happen. What causes you to suffer? Those are the things you will naturally try to arrange everything in your life to avoid. Now Jesus is turning that on its head. He's turning it on its head. Not only is he not promising to us that we will not experience suffering, he is saying that anyone who would follow him must embrace suffering. Read this next part with me and see if you can identify what Jesus does promise and what he does not promise. Okay? He says, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then, then, he will repay each person according to what he has done. We need transformed expectations, my brothers and sisters. Here is how you and I can actively engage in the transforming of our expectations. In other words, to set our minds on the things of God. Give up on things we naturally want but God has not promised, like avoiding suffering, and cultivate, cultivate a hope in what he has promised. For instance, that if we lose our lives for his sake, we will find them. What does that mean? That means eternal life with him. It means possessing the kingdom of heaven forever. Listen, that's not a little promise. That's so big you'll spend your life trying to wrap your mind around how big that promise is. Okay? 
He promises that when he returns, he will repay each person for what he has done. And what have followers in Christ done? What have you done? What have I done? We put our trust in him. And his righteousness has therefore been accounted to us. We will not, he will not reward us for avoiding suffering, but for following in his footsteps of embracing it. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him. And so do we, when we place our hope firmly in the glorious promises that he has made for us. That's where we're setting our hope. And there's joy before us. So this isn't really a hard message. I know this sounds like a hard message, doesn't it? But it's a glorious, sweet, encouraging message. Well, Peter was offended with Jesus, but he didn't leave. He hung in there. And so shall all who have thrown in their lot with him. When Jesus said some really hard sayings in the Gospel of John, remember? And the followers of Jesus were offended with his sayings and were turning away from him. And he asked the twelve, well, what about you? You want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him. And he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So I get so many personal illustrations concerning this in my life. My life with the Lord that started when I was just turned 16, completely unchurched and so desperately lost. And how I've taken so many times, I've spent a lifetime of smuggling, manufacturing, and mutating short-term ambitions, hopes, and expectations into my walk with the Lord. And a battling to identify and replace expectations for things God has not promised with things He has promised. I mean, when I first was saved, when I was first brought to faith, I had this amazing testimony and God had given me a real gift for sharing just sharing the gospel with enthusiasm and uh, people that know me say that there's a little bit of enthusiasm still but and, and there was fruit I saw you know other people giving their hearts to the Lord and so I had this expectation oh I'm going to be like a great evangelist didn't work out that way you know some of the things, excited things that we thought, I thought, I thought, man, we're gonna, this is gonna be a, we're gonna have a worldwide movement. Yeah, no. So, <laughs> didn't work out that way. Listen, when I first got saved, the Lord sovereignly delivered me immediately, miraculously from some identifying sin issues. Do you know what I mean by identifying sin issues? Like, some people are known to be thieves and some people are known to be promiscuous. That's, you know, how they're identified. That's like an identified, delivered. <laughs> delivered. So my expectation was all the sins in my life are just going to fall away. Yeah, no, it didn't work out that way. Some <laughs> sins we will be battling on the day that Jesus Christ calls us to come home. Stay on that battle. Stay on that battle. Because he's promised victory. He didn't necessarily promise you're going to have like this total victory tomorrow or today. 
Expectations we, expectations, we had, I got married to my beautiful wife, Denise. We had four children. We became known for being really great parents and, 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 and had a vision for it. It was miraculous that we had such a God-given vision for raising children for Jesus Christ. Nothing in our backgrounds would recommend that we might know something like that or help something like that. And our kids, they were just so beautiful and sweet and obedient and they just, and they were coming to know Jesus, you know, and we, so what was my expectation? Oh, well, I mean, you get a lot of, you get a lot of affirmation as a good parent. You figure, my kids will never have some of the problems I see other kids have. Oh, brother and sister, give, give up on that one, okay? Just give up on it. Just give up on it. Instead, replace that with a tenacious, praying, believing, trusting um, heart that says every person must have a, they must have dealings with the Lord individually and have trust, have faith for that, but not for what he hasn't promised, okay? I, I, he gave me, he gave me kind of giftedness and in, in being able to, you know, make a living for my family. <laughs> I mean, I was, it's just miraculous that I could make a living for my family when I was so young and so uneducated. And, and, and so I began to get this aspiration and maybe this expectation, oh, I'm going to be a real business guy, really do some big things. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. Expectations, man. Peter's lifelong growth in this regard has been A little, bit, a little bit clamped here. Peter's lifelong growth in this regard. His struggle. His failures. <clears throat> it's been very dear to me through the years. I'm, I like that my namesake is a schlub like me. <laughs> I take great encouragement from observing and thinking about how Jesus dealt with Peter's expectations. Seeing the various times that Peter's assumptions and expectations had to be corrected. Jesus loved Peter. He rebuked him strongly, but he loved him. And he even gave him a special role in the establishing of his church. He loves you and me. He loves us. And he is just as committed to our transformation over a lifetime. Listen. Here's the hard part. He has absolutely no obligation to fulfill our expectations. And he is not in the least degree manipulated by our expectations. Nor is he apologetic about not fulfilling them, but, but, he is patient and kind in adjusting and sanctifying our expectations. 
Remember this conversation that he had with Peter right before his ascension. Might have been like his last words. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you did not want to go. And this was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And he did. Over 30 years later, we see Peter, the old man, writing with such love and humility and joy about the great hope that awaits those who belong to Christ. Though they endure suffering in this life, I encourage you, pick up 1 Peter. Read it through. And, and pay attention. Pay attention to how much Peter talks in it about suffering. Citing Christ as our example and encouraging Christians to embrace it and endure, knowing what joy and glory awaits us. Peter is a wonderful example of a man whose expectations were transformed over a lifetime of following Christ. And in the end, he joyfully endured martyrdom for the glory of his Savior and God. Well, I bet you think that's the end of the sermon, but there's a little bit of section here we're going to look at because we saw... Peter, a man that belonged to Jesus Christ and was loved by Jesus Christ, who loved Jesus Christ, who got offended with Jesus Christ when his expectations were upended, okay? Now we're going to look at John the Baptist and his response to disappointed expectations and really how to not be offended with God, okay? So we're going to look briefly at that. When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This is in Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by, by, by me. Now, this is the same circumstances, okay? We're, this is the same circumstances. This is backing up a little t- and in time when John is still alive, but he's in Herod's dungeon. He's been arrested for what? Preaching the truth. Courageously, fearlessly preaching to power. Don't you? I love the idea of preaching to power and doing it in spite of the fact that power didn't like what he had to say and he was going to pay dearly for it, Okay? John the Baptist is not. See, Peter, I relate to. I don't relate to John the Baptist. I don't even get him. He is, he's not somebody I can easily relate to. His personal austerity, his goodness, his unwavering character, his courage, his total focus on mission, his lack of personal self, selfish ambition, all of those things, I don't get it. And for a long time, listen, for a long time, I hope that you guys aren't shocked if I say a long time I was bothered by something in the scriptures. (laughs) But if there's not some things that bother you, you're not paying attention. All right? For a long time, I was bothered by this passage of scripture. I was bothered by how John's life ended and how Jesus just let it happen. Jesus could have stopped it. I mean, you could, where Jesus was when they came with a question from John the Baptist, you could almost you could almost look across the edge of Lake Galilee and and look in in the distance and see Herod's pompous castle sitting there and John in that tomb 
underneath, okay? And not tomb, but in that, that dungeon underneath. And so I was bothered by that. And, um, and I was bothered by this passage of Scripture because I, I didn't know why it was included. Why would you include a story that has the very person who was sent ahead of time to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah to pave the way. This, you know, I mean, this is John the Baptist is like, I think he's the only person besides Jesus that we have prophecy about in the Old Testament. Okay? Telling of who he was a great man and he he paved the way. And then why would you have him coming back around and saying, Are you he? That bothered me. But then I think that why that's it's things like this though that I think more than anything else, attest to the authenticity of the gospel as we have it. It tells what really happened. And God includes these things so that we can, so that he can build our faith and encourage us with what's real. So anyway, John had this expectation and this passage makes it clear that Jesus was doing something that challenged John's expectations. See, what, what Jesus wasn't doing was he wasn't going to Jerusalem to take his, role, his reign. And what he was doing is he was marching around the Galilean countryside. And oh, by the way, he was also causing the blind to see, healing the lame, you know, cleansing the leper, lepers, uh, casting out demons, feeding thousands twice, walking on water, calming, commanding the waves and the sea. In other words, he was establishing beyond any credible argument his identity as the Son of God. He was doing all of that. So John had this expectation, though, that, was, that Jesus was going to be doing something different. And was his expe- expectation wrong? Listen to, listen, I'm going to just read this to you. You don't necessarily, or yeah, you might want to put it up on there. From, from let, let me remind you of what was John's expectation based on Luke chapter 1 and J- John's start in life. After his miraculous circumstances surrounding his birth and so forth. And then Zechariah, his, his father who was serving as high priest. And then John is born and Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit who, by the way, tells the truth. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. And just listen to what is being said here. And raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord and to prepare his ways. I can almost see the, the smoke and glory filling the temple here to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins 
because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. Hallelujah. These are the expectations John grew up with. Now how many times do you think that his father sat him down on his knee to recount those things? How much do you think those things filled John's heart as he was growing up? He would have been surrounded by this strong calling and certainty about what his life would be. So when Jesus fails to do what John strongly expects, he's got a lot more reason to have expectations than Peter, who just came wandering in, hey, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. All right. (laughs) Whatever that means. Yeah. Now he grew up with this expectation. So when Jesus fails to do what he expects, what does John send his messengers to ask? What would you ask in these circumstances? Jesus, why are you letting me languish in this dirty, rotten prison, this dungeon? Why are you letting this unrighteous heathen deal so unjustly with me? Why aren't you going to Jerusalem to establish your throne? And so on. But what is John's question? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, what's going on with this question? Didn't John himself proclaim Jesus to be the Lamb of God? And didn't, didn't he even testif- attest that he saw the dove alight upon him and hear the voice from heaven declaring him to be God's beloved sons? And by the way, he knew Jesus. They, they were related. He knew, about, he knew about Jesus' miraculous birth. He knew all of that stuff. Listen, John would rather doubt his own senses, his own understanding of what's right, of what he even knows, than to presume to scold or question the anointed one about his actions. If Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, the promised anointed one whose whose way John is to herald and prepare, John does not need to advise him. He needs to submit to him. John just needs to double check. He just needs to double check to make sure he didn't make an error in proclaiming him. He would be reeling. He would be, he would be, who knows what kind of psychological state he might be in in that dungeon. But that's, listen, this is an example for us. Let me tell you how. I'm going to try and draw this together so, because I know that it's not quite coming together yet for you, is it? This is how to us to ask God for confirmation when our expectations are going unmet. When we need what we need in moments of difficulty, doubt, disappointment more than anything else is not an explanation from God of why he's doing stuff, but to see afresh who Jesus is. That's what we need. <laughs> We need to have our faith renewed with fresh confirmation that he is who he said he is. By the way, he gives us that and delights to give us that. He gives us, he delights to give us. Anytime you pray, Jesus, let me see afresh. I need to see who are you. He delights to answer that prayer. 
Notice the way that Jesus answers John. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now, what is that that he just sent them to say? He quoted scripture. He quoted the prophet Isaiah to John. And he knows how John intimately, John's Father Zechariah quoted from Isaiah in prophesying over John. John loves the scripture. He's basked in it. Jesus gave him exactly what he needs. And listen what else he does. He says, he, he tells, in telling his disciples to report what they hear and see, um, and quoting from Isaiah, he's given a, 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 a something that, I'm sorry, I talk for a living too. <laughs> As followers of Christ, we're given the same commission that he gave to these messengers. And what is that? To report on the real things that Jesus did in real history to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning him. Jesus uses scripture to speak to his followers. Now, Jesus knew that John was intimately acquainted with and treasured these prophecies. So there could have been no more loving and reassuring way he could have answered John than through the scriptures. And here's the principle to be applied to our lives. We can expect God to answer us in the same way he answered John, through his word. We must never say that we haven't heard from God when our Bibles are lying unopened on our bookshelves. God has spoken. God has given us his word. And God ever speaks assurance and comfort and hope to his people through his word, which will never fail. The more we treasure the word, ponder it, store it in our hearts, the better able we are to hear from him and receive the comfort and correction he would bring us through it. And by the way, friends help too when they're speaking the truth of the word. So Jesus said, blessed is the one who's not offended with me. Was he rebuking John? No. He was actually commending John. And if you read the rest of that passage, you'll see how strongly he calls him the greatest man who ever lived. It was the people around him at the time, that moment that he was rebuking for insisting that he fulfilled their expectations. So we, there's, there's, there's more. I'm going to skip a over a little stuff just so I can bring, it, bring this in, okay? You, brothers and sisters, and I, are not those that are offended. Remember Peter quoted um, that, that Peter later says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But we're, that's not our destiny. We've been a cho- we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And we've been called to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. So what we have in John's example is a really good example of somebody suffering an upending of their expectations, but not growing offended with God. But we also have an example of somebody who's adjusted by God, who did get offended with God, but, but, but God dealt with his, him. 
So we need to have a ex- uh, transformation of our expectations. Our, our expectations for pursuit of comfort and success and being admired, they need to be replaced with expectations of suffering in this life. Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And I have struggled with this through my life, with this. I love comfort. I love, <laughs> I love pleasure. I love fun. I love fun. And we live, by the way, we live in a generation and culture that pursues fun like no other in history before us. So I've struggled with it a good bit through the years, and it helps me to see how Peter grew in his mindset over a lifetime. Listen, if we want to be where our Lord is, we need to embrace the place of suffering for this is where the Lord is, and this is where we will walk in fellowship with him and find his resurrection power. Well, there's a whole, just so much more that could be said about these passages. I, I hope you know that I, I didn't deal with them exhaustively in any kind of a way, shape, or form. But, but, but um, I want to ask you this question in closing. What assumptions have you made about your marriage, about your career, about, about your children, about this church, about this, this beautiful church that God's granted you to be a part of? about what it means to live in America. All of these things. Will you bring these expectations to the cross of Christ? Let's go there together. Father, we just do that now. Simply before you, Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit, as he's illuminating our own hearts under your word, that you would deal graciously with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.